Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Unwiring Minds. This is Raquel Pasbergia, your host, and I'm very happy to introduce you to Greg Goodhart, the learning coach. He'll be unraveling the misconceptions of learning and how that can be approached to education and beyond. I'll let him get right to it. Hi, thanks for having me on Unwiring Minds, Raquel. It's super cool to be here. I'm Greg Goodhart, the learning coach, and my website is greggoodhart.com, G-R-E-G-G-G-O-O-D-H-A-R-T. That's right, four G's and two names. I have too many. I became a learning coach because as a teacher, I found we're not taught how learning works in school, and we're led to believe we need some magical gift at birth to get good at things. I used to believe that too, and I was a teacher. Wrong, wrong, and wrong. How successful we are at anything we wish to do, from sports to academics to life in general, will be determined by how well we learn to do that thing. Learning is indeed the most powerful and important piece to achieving whatever it is we want to accomplish, whether that's mastering something at a genius level, or if it's just improving a little bit, or getting decent grades. And the thing is, we're not taught this in school. Most all of the time, we're told what to learn, and then we're sent home to figure out how to actually learn it. No wonder there's such disparity among students who are otherwise, quote, doing their work, unquote. Some turn out to be geniuses and achieve. Others average lower or much lower grades. This should not be happening. To be fair, our teachers are not being taught the learning science in teacher training programs. Our schools of education and schools of cognitive science, where the answers are about how to learn, are kept separate from each other. Take, for example, the article published in the Professional Journal of the American Psychiatric Association, written by researcher Frank N. Stein. No, just kidding. Don't tell him I said that. His name's Frank N. Dempster, called The Spacing Effect, a case study in the failure to apply the results of psychological research. He spends a good deal of time lamenting how something so researched and proven like the spacing effect could still be being ignored in mainstream education. He suggests reasons and possible solutions. The thing is, he wrote that in 1988, and we're still not using it. Well, I'm using it. The people I coach are using it. Many people who become geniuses use it. But for some reason, spacing and many other ways the brain really learns best are largely ignored by most of us, and we suffer through trying to figure out how to get good at anything when the reality is there's a way to get good as we'd like at anything and everything we want. And the answers are out there for anyone to find. So what do we need to know about this? Learning is an ecosystem. Getting better at any of the areas I'm about to present will make your learning a lot more powerful, and some are able to teach better than others by simply getting good at one of them. But when you add any other area, they affect each other by making each stronger than the individual. The old, the whole, is greater than the sum of its parts, or something you can call synergy. For instance, you may have heard of deliberate practice. It's central to any skill development or improvement. It's not well explained, but the people who do figure it out will seem highly effective. However, without a knowledge of things like spacing or contextual interference, there's only so far and fast we can go. So let's start with this. What is deliberate practice? The most impactful skill researcher of our time was Kay Anders Ericsson. Early in his career, he went looking for the elusive elements of talent. Instead, he found specific practices that all high achievers use. Erickson and his colleagues have done decades of work devoted to discovering the underlying elements involved in improving any skill, whether to the highest levels or even just the next level, just getting better at anything. They named what they found deliberate practice. 
Prior to this term, we used the nebulous word talent to describe the mystery of skill development. While there's a lot written about deliberate practice, there's little understanding, but it can actually be broken down into a several step process and built up from there. But you're not going to do much deliberate practice if you don't recognize the next important area of learning, and that is the great, great misunderstanding of talent. The word talent is really just a word that describes the mystery humankind has faced for thousands of years as to what makes some people better, smarter, or more skilled than others. Since we couldn't find specific causes, we accepted that this superiority just kind of, you know, happens, and we don't know how. Nobody, as of yet, has been able to identify the inborn elements that lead to expert performance. We have, however, consistently found an amount and type of work that correlates to this level of success. This starts to make sense when we begin to understand the next important area, neuroplasticity and how the brain learns. For many years, neuroscientists and a lot of everyone else believe that the brain stopped evolving and changing after critical periods of learning before adulthood. In a few landmark studies starting in the 1980s, researchers began to discover adult neuroplasticity, which was the term invented to describe the physical and functional changes that occur in the brain as a result of practice and study. It was not until the early 2000s that the concept of neuroplasticity became widely accepted. These significant changes in our brains are the result of learning. We control our brains, how much we use them and how we use them. We can configure them and build them to be as good or great at anything we choose. So what should we do? We should understand proven strategies like contextual interference, mass repetition, or repeating a particular thing that has been learned over and over again to increase skill has been taught at every level of learning, the old drill and kill. Like many teachers, I believe for years this was the way to absorb information, but there's a quicker way to get better results. By varying the context in which we repeatedly expose ourselves to new knowledge, we can increase our ability to recall that knowledge and use it in critical thinking, or otherwise known as problem solving, which is the goal of all learning. In one study, students who studied for a math test in two different rooms got better grades than ones who studied in the same room. There are many more much, there are many much more creative ways to employ this strategy as well, so look into it. That's just a very basic thing. There's not time to get into it here. Now that the knowledge is stored, we turn toward retrieval practice. We've probably noticed that mass repetition does get us better at something while we're doing it. This is because it's easy to access recent information. Now we figured out the best way to learn and store memories in long-term memory is by using contextual interference, but it's still harder to recall the next day. And guess what? Your test or performance or sports game or whatever is going to be on a next day. To make sure we can pull the information out of long-term memory and into short-term memory where we will use it, we engage in retrieval practice. This involves allowing for a period of time in which we begin to forget the information called a period of disuse in the scientific literature, then interrupt that forgetting by trying to remember it out of the blue. Do this enough times that it becomes easy to call the information up anytime, anywhere. Yep, this is the spacing effect I talked about earlier. Even if we get a retrieval wrong or can't remember, something called the testing effect has shown that just trying to remember it makes the next attempt more successful with no additional study. Have you heard of testing anxiety? In many cases, the cause is simply a lack of strong retrieval. The reason we can't call up the answers we need is not because we're nervous. We're nervous because we can't find the answers we need. 
With retrieval practice, answers pop right into our head as needed, and there's nothing to make us anxious. I should add that testing anxiety could be a psychological condition called social anxiety disorder. If you suspect you may have any type of psychological disorder, be safe and get evaluated by a professional. And if you do have one of these uh, conditions, please get help. It works. The good news is that it appears the brain is designed to crave the high-level problem-solving and cognition brought on by deliberate practice and all of these types of work I'm describing. This is evident in something called flow. Flow is a mental state of operation in which a person performing an activity is fully immersed in a feeling of energized focus, full involvement, and enjoyment in the process of that activity. In essence, Flow is characterized by a complete absorption in what one does and a resulting loss in one's sense of space and time. Some people call this being in the zone, and we've all experienced it. It is that weird and wonderful feeling when we work on something for what feels like 15 or 20 minutes, only to look up at the clock and see an hour or more has passed. Some will tell us that we have to get good at something first to experience this state, but there is at least one exception. Learn to do deliberate practice and the constant problem-solving activity, even at the beginning stages of learning something new, is a flow-producing machine. This requires training focus, which isn't easy, but it is also not hard and doesn't take that long. I regularly do it with people in a few minutes. And all of this takes self-control. We know that we will have to make ourselves, or if you're a teacher, our students, or, or a parent, We'll know we'll have to make ourselves do some things we might not normally want to do. The most obvious is regular study, which is difficult to build for many people because don't, we don't really know what we should be doing. We just kind of fill the time with, um, well, studying. In music, we call this type of practice play and pray. In order to train attention or focus so that we can evaluate what we're doing in practice, it takes mental energy to come up with a potential solution. It is much easier just to read and highlight and read again. For these types of things, it can be good to recognize that self-control begins with something called orienting selective attention. This is the moment in which we stop doing whatever it is we're doing and make ourselves begin doing something we don't want to do by initiating a neural response in the brain. And human beings hate doing this. One thing we can do here is develop that by working for short periods of time to strengthen the process of beginning, the orienting of selected attention. After doing this for a while, the process of starting becomes easier. It's like tying our shoes. It's not pleasant or unpleasant. We just do it. Then we can build more time from there. And if we're creating flow states through deliberate practice, it begins to become fun. And finally, we have to learn about mindset. Dr. Carol Dweck has spent over three decades researching what she calls mindset theory. I describe it as why most of us can't get out of our own way when it comes to learning. The book Make It Stick offers a very broad overview of her research. Quote, Dweck's research has been, Dweck's research has been triggered by her curiosity over why some people become helpless when they encounter challenges and fail at them, whereas others respond to failure by trying new strategies and redoubling their efforts. She found that a fundamental difference between the two responses lies in how a person attributes failure. Those who attribute failure to their own inability, such as I'm not intelligent, become helpless. Those who interpret failure as the result of insufficient effort or an ineffective strategy dig deeper and try different approaches. Close quote. Sounds a bit like contextual interference, doesn't it? This small psychological shift in how we attribute failure shows how easy it can be to get in our own way. And she has found that there are many more of these self-imposed hurdles. 
The thing is, if we're doing all the things I just spoke about, we don't need to blindly believe we can get better. This mindset in which we get better is something Dweck calls a growth mindset. The reason we can have it is without blind faith is because we have tons of evidence from our own incremental learning that has convinced us we can always find a solution. That is what a growth mindset really is. It is not just empty encouragement. So that's it. You have all the talent and all the ability you're ever going to need. You just need to have the right knowledge about learning to make it all work. It is in the research, and it's out there for anyone to understand. Learning is indeed the most powerful and important piece to achieving whatever we want, even if it is only improving a little bit. That is absolutely amazing. Um, I had never approached learning anything, whether that's in my like academic path or non-academic path in this manner. And so I'm definitely going to take this information into consideration and apply it to my day-to-day -day life. And I hope all our listeners at Unwearing Minds also do the same. Um, Greg, thank you for being here. And Unwearing Minds listeners, thank you for being here as well. I will see you all next time.